The following opinions expressed within the content are solely the speakers and do not reflect the opinions and beliefs of Child Free Media Limited or its affiliates. Hello, I'm Cody, one of the co-founders of the Child Free Convention. I'll be moderating uh, tonight's topic along with my co-host, Lenore Faye. Hi, <laughs> well, I guess you introduced me for Yeah, I just introduced you. We'll just roll <laughs> with that, huh? Hi, everybody. <laughs> and our, to our topic for today uh, is going to be, is child-free good for the planet? And we're, we're biased, I guess you could say that. Uh, but we're happy and excited to have uh, Nandita Bajaj with us. And she is a wealth of knowledge on this topic and super excited, super stoked. Um, Nandita, we want to tell everybody a little bit about yourself. Sure. Thank you both for having me on. Um, I work in a couple of different fields, but they're all around this topic. Um, I'm currently the executive director of Population Balance, a small nonprofit that uh, provides solutions for and also education on overpopulation and overconsumption and their impacts on people, animals, and the planet. I'm also an adjunct faculty with the Institute of Humane Education, where I teach a few different courses on human rights, on environmental ethics, and also one course that I've designed uh, on pronatalism and overpopulation. Very cool. Thank you. And I, that leads into like our first question is so so how does being uh, how does how does the child free choice influence your work? Yeah, um, and maybe I'll provide a little bit of context on how I came upon the child free choice. Um, so it was about um, ten years ago where my partner and I um, made a conscious decision to not have children, mainly because of overpopulation. Um, but very interestingly, up until that point, um, I had never really made the connection between um, my reproductive decision and environmental impact, even though um, I was a staunch environmental advocate throughout my adult life. And I had kind of taken the my role of, um, you know, possibly being a parent as an inevitability, something that was just going to happen. I had grown up seeing everybody around me having a couple of kids. So I, ju I just had assumed that I, at one point in time, I will have two children, even though I had never really desired um, the, the physical, biological, or social aspect of motherhood. Um, and then, you know, throughout uh, the, the last 10 years, I've had quite an education in um, overpopulation and its impacts on the planet. And I've been quietly interested in the subject. Um, and I was working in other fields before this. I was an engineer for a few years. I worked in high school education for about 10 years. And I looked at the decision to not have children as kind of a personal isolated decision. And it was something we were doing, you know, to our part to protect the planet. Um, but I had really not been very comfortable in speaking uh, openly and confidently about overpopulation. And as you all know, overpopulation is a loaded word. 
it has a lot of misconceptions and um, it's difficult for people to talk about it. So I kind of, you know, participated in that for a number of years. And it was about five years ago that I came upon the concept of pronatalism, which is the, you all know it so well, because you, you are constantly dismantling those structures. But for our viewers, the, the social pressures uh, that are placed on people to procreate. And I met a lot of luminaries in the movement. I read a lot on that. And it was really illuminating for me um, just how pervasive those pressures are, but also just how um, oppressive pronatalism is. And also why it, it is so difficult to talk about the idea of <clears throat> having or not having children because we are kind of made to believe that um, we all have this burning desire to have children and that it's the only pathway for, for people uh, to find fulfillment and, you know, to find purpose in their lives. <clears throat> yeah, I, I think that, I think a lot of people have followed a very similar path to yours to where they, they kind of, if they didn't know right away that they didn't want to have kids, they were following that, that life script of, you know, uh, get an education, get a job, get married, have kids, you know, and that's what you lather, rinse, repeat to generation after generation. And so, yeah, the, 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 the oppressiveness of like the, the pronatalism topic, a lot of people, when they're first introduced to it, they're like, well, why is what, oppressive how? And it like, just watch any type of, you know, uh, media, whether it's a, you know, a commercial on TV with, you know, the happy family and they're happy because they're a family or the inevitable TV shows where you've got a group of uh, actors and actresses and eventually they build in that oh someone's pregnant and everybody's happy and now we can end the series we couldn't end it until a child has been inserted so i think a lot of folks can can uh relate to what you're talking about and i'm so glad you added that to remind me that i'm amongst friends here i'm not really needing to provide an <laughs> education and it feels very validating to be among people who really get this um and, and really, you know, over the last 10 years, that's become the interest that's really driven my interest is just trying to first understand how um, pervasive it was in my own life that I did not even see it as an option for myself to not have children until, until I had that conversation. But then to understand why it's so difficult to talk about it, as you mentioned, um, the glorification of parenthood, the glorification of what family means, and it involves pregnancy and you know childbirth and all. Um, but then working in the overpopulation arena, I really started to understand why it's such a touchy subject because overpopulation is inextricably linked to reproduction. And reproduction, if it's sold to us as our main source of identity, then of course it's gonna be really difficult to um, pierce through that. But you know, as you guys are all doing, if, if we can really start to dismantle um, these pressures and see pronatalism as a social construct and not this you know, burning biological urge that everyone experiences, you can have real conversations about you know, the impact of having uh, children, having large families, um, et cetera. And so, you know, to answer your question, my life path kind of became my work um, over the last six months as I've moved 
you know, to very intently in uh, the overpopulation, sustainable population advocacy movement. So as an educator, how have you broached the topic of the child free conversation with your students? If you have at all, assuming you have, or can really. I have, I, I've started to do that. And um, I mean, I do this with students, but I do this with just generally anyone I'm talking to about this. <clears throat> I mean, I ended up, as I said, you know, going to, um, I don't know if I've mentioned it, but I ended up going back to school a couple of years ago to delve more deeply into pronatalism and looking at its connection with overpopulation. Um, and through my research and through my grad course, I ended up creating a whole course on um, the implications of having a child on our identity, on the world, on the animals, you know, on other people. And um, so I do have a lot of conversations about this. Um, the course that I currently teach, I ran a pilot this, this past summer, and we had folks from literally every single type of family structure. We had biological parents, we had adoptive parents, we had parents um, who are guardians to animals, so they don't have biological children. Uh, and then we have child-free families and, and folks, you know, who are single and consider themselves as part of a family unit. And so it was really great, number one, having such a different variety of people talking about pronatalism, um, because pronatalism doesn't just impact folks who choose not to have biological children. It impacts everybody. And I don't need to tell you that. Um, uh, but the main nugget that I found in approaching these conversations is through a place of spaciousness and compassion, because um, most people uh, don't really have uh, the, the wherewithal and the resources or the privilege to make this choice. And I mean, in, in my work, even in my course, we look at pronatalism and its impact throughout the world, not just in an industrialized country like ours, but um, in low-income countries, high-fertility countries, and how you know it's driven by patriarchy, and women have very little reproductive autonomy or none. And then in our countries, as you've already said, Cody, it's glorified because our fertility is low, and so we need to encourage reproduction somehow, and we do that by promoting this as the only path. But the, the main thing, you know, to answer your question is to approach this with a lot of space, um, because in my work, I'm not trying to promote one pathway like pronatalism does. I'm really hoping to create, you know, this um, world where we can be making liberated choices for ourselves, but also be making responsible choices given, you know, all of the calamities that we are currently facing in the world. I'm glad you brought that up because when people are thinking that you're you're educating kids on on the topic, they're going to be like, "Are you telling my kids not to have babies?" I mean, that's <laughs> you know where, where it seems like it's going to go. So it's, I'm glad you explained that a little bit more. But what's the feedback been from like the students? Like after they like, is a lot of them? It's probably the first time ever thinking about this topic. It's been so positive. It's because, like you said no one's really ever spoken to them about um, pronatalism or even 
what a family means, uh, what are different types of family structures that exist. You know, as you all know quite well, when we hear the word family, we kind of have this very narrow view of a heterosexual couple with two kids and all of the other life paths are left out of the conversation. Um, so um, with the students and a lot of the ones I'm teaching now are at a grad level, but I also provide educational uh, presentations to classrooms and they light up because it's, it's like the most real discussion you can have with them about their life path. And having a child is one of the most important choices you make. And it's incredible how many kids, even adults that I work with, um, just say that, like my experience, it's just an assumption that we're going to do this, we're going to have children. And a lot of people also know how many children they're going to have based on whatever social norms they've grown up with. Um, so again, it's, it's not saying, you know, you should do this or you should do that, but just saying, you know, we're shining light on these social constructs and social constructs can be good um, and they can also be prohibitive. So really it's for us to find out for ourselves um, to what degree do we want to follow a certain path and how autonomous and liberated is that path for us. And I, that's my favorite thing to do is, is to talk about this to, to students. I like that you use the term compassion because, yeah. you know, talking about being child free, it we almost feel defensive. We do feel defensive a lot of times, you know, when you're when you're having this conversation, not even from an educator standpoint, but just as a child free person, you know, when you get asked the, the standard questions. And so, you know, a lot of times, you know, we kind of prepare ourselves for worst case scenario. We're going into battle. <laughs> you know, so it's, it's great when you present it that way with space and compassion, because that's what really does need to be that making the decision and having the conversation from a peaceful place has been quite um, impactful, even to my own life, because I'm not I'm just open to whatever, you know, whether it's it's negative comments back or questions from people you wouldn't even expect to have questions, you know, like from yes. parents, the conversations are quite enlightening on both ends. But I, I do feel that having that, that not being defensive, and, and that's something that we have to learn and, and even promote with, I think, within the child free community is, you know, how can we be compassionate to someone that disagrees with our choice or doesn't understand yes. it. You know, mm -hmm. I, I feel that's so important because then it's less anger and frustration on both part of both camps, right? We can just have a civil discussion and then we learn from each other. So I really like that you brought, that you mentioned compassion. Yeah, thank you. And the, the, the fact that you aren't like going for or against the topic of pronatalism when you when you discuss it you're just literally shining a light on it and having a discussion about the topic and i think that's you know to the matrix the red pill the blue pill like you know you don't even know it's there like a lot of people don't even know it's affecting their life and their choices like you said they already know how many kids they're going to have they've already got them named like they already know yes. like they've already got the the 2.5 kids and the dog and the cat you know they where their the kids are going to go to school they've got it all figured out and so they don't realize that that's kind of ingrained and programmed into us at a early age to not realize that becoming a parent is the choice. It's the choice yes. to become a parent. It not becoming a parent means you're, you're just kind of staying the same. That's the way I look at it. Yeah, 
Exactly. And, you know, a lot of what we're advocating for is reproductive and personal autonomy and self-determination for people and to promote one pathway, which is then, you know, opposite of what's currently happening. So a lot of people right away ask me, you know, are you promoting antinatalism? And it's not at all what I'm doing um, because what we and I stand for is autonomy and self-determination, like you're saying, I'm promoting anti-pronatalism. I'm fighting against the pressures that are telling us what we should be doing to find fulfillment. And, you know, if people lean in deeply enough and figure out what's the right path for them, um, parenthood is just as valid a choice as non-parenthood. Um, and you know, the other piece to the puzzle that I'm bringing through my work in population advocacy is it's it's got to be liberated. It's got to be, you know, autonomous, but then it also has to be informed and uh, responsible. So that's the, the second piece of the puzzle is once we know everything about having children and the impact of having children, uh, what uh, how can we make choices that, you know, are... Uh, in the best interest of ourselves, our kids, and the planet. And the topic of smaller family, of smaller family, it's not really something that comes up a lot in the uh, child-free sphere. You know, we, we if you're child-free, it's because, you know, you, either by choice or by circumstance, you literally just don't have a child in your life uh, in a lot of regards. So the topic of smaller family, you know, it's, 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 kind of an ally like it's a, it's a it's a little distant cousin of being child free so what yes. do you think is missing from that conversation of smaller family i love how you said that it's it is an ally um and we are you know all parts of families even though we don't have children and um one of the assumptions that gets made even when i said you know with the idea of family is that it's a very uh, narrow assumption narrow path is that family automatically includes kids kids even phrases like starting a family um, means you know you weren't a family until you biologically procreated um, and that excludes people like us and people who are childless or people who um, you know are living in a different kind of a family structure that is not the non the normative path um, you know, having said that, um, two things is um, I work in the sustainable population arena and for the majority of the world, the idea of family is still very narrow and very traditional. And so I still think it's important to continue to advocate for small families and to normalize small families um, because um, you know, larger families, especially in, in low-income countries, tend to be a sign of, as I've said, low reproductive autonomy and pronatalist patriarchal structures. So the benefit of small families for countries with high fertility is that it, it really is, is premised upon education and empowerment of women so that they're having kids later if they're having kids at all. And then they're having fewer of them so that they can, you know, invest more in each child. And there's, you know, greater financial incentives and it's better for the planet. And for countries like ours, um, even though, you know, 
we often say, well, we don't have to worry about smaller families here because our fertility is already so low. What we don't often think about is, you know, the ecological impact is a function of our consumption and our numbers. And we happen to live in countries with the highest per capita consumption. So, you know, we, and I'm not assuming all of us, but most of us do have the privilege of choice. Um, and with that privilege comes responsibility and, and knowing, you know, how much um, impact our consumptive choices have. And then having a kid, you know, in a country like ours has 20 times um, the, the impact than the combination of all of the other low impact things you can do, like, you know, being vegan and flying less and not having a car, which we should be all doing anyway, but proportionally having a child um, really, you know, uh, adds a lot more impact. So it's, it's really uh, the, the small family conversation needs to be normalized globally. But then to your point, we need to be included in that conversation because we are legitimate families. Yeah, and the like on a global scale, like you kind of touched on earlier, how you know the the smaller family, the pronatalism is is kind of a red button that when a lot of people think that they're like, oh, you must be talking about you know countries that are overpopulated, like beyond their means, not the over-consuming countries that are you know leading uh, in the the greenhouse gases and things of that nature, and so. Yeah, the, the the smaller family conversation is definitely, uh, in my opinion, it's it's an ally to um, the child free community. And you even hear from parents who feel pressured to have more kids. You know, like I have friends who've had one child. A few have chosen just to have one, but then they tell me, "Okay, I chose to have one." But people keep asking, "When am I going to have a second child?" And uh, that of gets the, the opposite of the opposite uh, gender. It's like, "Well, you've already got a boy, yeah. I'm not a girl. Yes. Keep trying." So, I mean, bring, bringing it yes. like to a person back to personal choice, you know, if someone has chosen to have one or two children, but then that conversation keeps going like, well, you, you have two. Why not have three? Why not have six? Yes. You know, so I, I feel like, you know, as talking about allyship, you know, between um, parent, parents and child free is that even just easing off the pressure for those who already do have children. Like if you have one, if you have two and you feel that's it for you, you're you're happy you know, how that conversation can even be beneficial to them as to like, say, hey, back off, <laughs> you yes. know, quit asking, when am I going to have more kids? Like, when are you going to be satisfied? Because they do feel that pressure. And, you know, from a child free point of view, we don't, we don't think too often about that, unless someone tells us that they've been pressured to have more children, because we think, well, they already have a kid. So they're, they're off the hook. No one's saying yes. anything to them anymore. But, and I mean, I really, I feel, I, I can't speak to any real thing else outside of North America, but I feel, you know, even with social media and, you know, the happy, smiling family, we things we see everywhere that, you know, two is okay, but you could do more. <laughs> you know, I just, yes. so I, I just think it's, it's good to be aware that those conversations do happen. It's, yes. it's not just child-free people who are feeling pressured that parents with kids, you know, they're not procreating enough for some people. So yeah. you know, it's, it's good to, to highlight. And it's, it's such an important point and something I found too in even teaching the course, um, you know, with adults uh, in my grad course is um, there were a lot of parents in the course, biological and adoptive, and they shared that 
they experience the same kinds of pressures that child-free folks do or childless folks do um, because it it's like you're saying, Lenora, it, it never really ends. And it's not just to have more kids, although, you know, people who have one child uh, do experience that. It's like, when are you going to, you know, give your other child company and have the opposite gender and blah, blah, blah. But then even folks who have two or three kids, they're not experiencing necessarily pressure to have more kids, but there is a different kind of pronatalism, which is this promise of perfection, this facade that you have to present yourself as having it all together and that you can never experience any kind of uh, regret, even temporary, temporary regret about, um, you know, having kids or frustration um, that, you know, something might be lost through through your um, decision to have children, like you may not be able to focus as much on your personal relationship or your career or a variety of other, you know, hobbies, for example. So those discussions are also missing because we are promised this perf perfect, you know, um, conclusion, the perfect ending. Um, and parents bear the brunt of that pressure because they have to continue to maintain that facade. And yeah, like I say, pronatalism really, it hurts all of us. And, and there's, there's like a, you know, a running joke you might see some parents say when they start to have uh, multiple children, that they, they kind of look side at it, the, the kids are outnumbering us. Like when it was one, <laughs> we, we could kind of hit, but the other, there, there's more right. than, of them than us now. Yeah. <laughs> so how can the child-free choice lifestyle be woven into the smaller family conversation. Do you think it can be, or, or how can we kind of worm our way in there? I think you guys are doing it right now. <laughs> <laughs> Yay, all right. <laughs> I think conversations like these are so vital to, to keep normalizing it for people, for parents and non-parents, that it's okay to, to make non-normative choices and that we are all allies. Um, often there can be the, these camps that form that, you know, there's the child-free people and then there's the parents and, you know, they don't get along or they, you know, hate each other. And there, there may be, you know, I, I know that that does happen in communities and I try to stay away from uh, communities that oppose or promote just one choice as a pathway. But um, we really do, if, if, what we're advocating for is autonomy and liberation and self-determination for people, then we have to continue to promote all choices as, as legitimate choices. And, um, you know, as part of the work that I'm doing at Population Balance, that's something I'm trying to do even within the overpopulation community is, is normalizing the child-free choice as a legitimate small family. Um, and, you know, it recently came out with this campaign called Redefine Family. Um, it's on our website. We're celebrating a diversity of family choices. Family can be, you know, you and your uh, place in nature that you really connect with. It can be you and your animals. It can be, um, you know, you and a group of friends that live together. It doesn't need to mean this narrow definition. Um, and the more we can normalize that, the more we can start to normalize, you know, what small means and what small footprint means. And what family means. I mean, to some people, the word family is so concrete. 
that it mm -hmm. is with a child involved. Uh, and like Lenore, like your, your question, you know, how can we weave it in like a smaller family? Um, you know, I'm married. My, my wife and I were a family of two. Yes. There you go. Like that. We're a family. Like, you know, it, it, if, uh, you know, someone is, is single and they choose to be single, want to be single, or they just happen to be single right now, you know, they're a family of one. They've got, they, they've got, they do have, you know, possibly family relatives. They've got friends they're close with your family to me is kind of who you make of it. And that, that I think is a great way to maybe weave in the child-free conversation is that, it's that word family. And it means something different to everybody. Uh, but the, when you add that, uh, pronatalism skew to it, it's family equals children. Yes. And also too, not everyone has a great experience with the word family. You know, it's, it can, yeah. it's very loaded for so a lot true. of people who have suffered at the hands of their family and not to go in that direction for so much with the conversation, but to recognize that, you know, we hear terms like family is everything. And what comes to mind is, is the traditional nuclear family. I mean, that's what my default setting was programmed to be. And I do have to work on that not being my first, my first assumption, because I don't live that way. I'm not going yes. to live that way. So why is that my default setting, you know? Um, but also too, you know, the term family to some people just is a heavy feeling, you know, dealing with past trauma or what have you. And so, you know, looking at all the options, some people use different words. It's, it's yeah. to me, I feel that as a relief, like, providing options on the table because that's a lot of pressure you know how we're, we're pressured just like we've already talked about pressure but just to have life figured out by a certain age or yes. oh you're you're of this age you now need to start having a family or whatever you know it's just it's a lot <laughs> it's a lot to live <laughs> let alone <laughs> you, know, you know just just start piling on all the expectations that society has for us so i think it's great that you know what the work that you're doing with with what is the definition of family and making it so broad just to take the pressure off of people and also recognizing that f family is, everyone has a different experience. And we can't assume that, you know, even if we had a happy family or that happy family is the norm. <laughs> and yeah. I'll leave it at That's that. Still that true again, too. That, that'll, that'll go down a different. Yeah. Yeah. Or that, the, or that the term happy has to follow or, or, or proceed family. Like, it, yeah. it, it, yes. it's, almost like yes. it's, it's not even a space. It's like happy family. Like yeah. there it is. That's it. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so. Yes. Um, and to the folks that are watching us, thank you for, for uh, checking in. This is live, unless this is archived. If you're in the future watching this, then it's not live. But this is live. So if you guys have a question that you'd like to ask uh, Nandita or us, like maybe something to discuss, feel free to do that in the comments. Right now, I think we're on Facebook and YouTube. So enjoy that. And then in the future, when it's archived, if there is a question after watching this, put it in the comments and we'll try to get a response for you uh, from one of us or from hopefully from Nandita herself and that will be awesome so we'll continue on the what you're doing as executive director of uh, population balance is is very important and it's awesome uh, so from the leadership standpoint what are maybe like the top three things that uh population balance is, is hoping to um make headway on in issues let's say by 2023 because we're almost done with this year anyway 2021 um so going into 2022 and into 2023 what what are like the top three things on your your whiteboard that you're looking at hmm. yeah there are a um, couple of directions that that we're currently working on um just by virtue of having a background in education education is a huge area for me to to focus on because it's like the one system that 
really affects other systems. So we're doing focusing a lot on on the one hand on individual choices and individual um, you know change um, through um, providing guest speaker visits you know through conferences, classroom visits, and community groups. So there's we've we've got a lot of requests coming from that. So having these one on one personal conversations with people about their life choices. But then we also know that with 8 billion people, individual choices alone aren't going to make, you know, enough of a dent. Um, So the other thing we're working on is policy level work. And with that, we're actually partnering with some other organizations, like I'm working really closely with Fair Start Movement, uh, a great organization that's focusing on child-centric family planning. Um, So taking into account the the welfare and needs of the child uh, before you even think about having uh, a child. But then I'm working with- What a novel idea. Yeah, (laughs) exactly. (laughs) Um, uh, Phoenix Zones Initiative uh, and uh, Stable Planet Alliance, Animal Legal Defense Fund. Um, And we're working in different capacities to, to really help Uh, make policy reforms in different areas. And policy reform is really, really difficult. So right now we're just kind of having conversations. And the main thing we're realizing is that work can only be done through collaboration with Mm -hmm. bigger organizations and trying to put pressure on governments um, to, for example, stop promoting pronatalism and stop incentivizing you know, reproduction, unlimited reproduction, and disincentivizing um, child-free and other family types. Um, But also um, holding corporations and governments responsible for uh, promoting this kind of unsustainable, unjust growth and population growth and family planning um, that has led us into the, the mess we're in. Um, so really, it's, it's to expand our uh, capacity. We're a tiny, small, but mighty group of um, volunteers and staff. Uh, but I think our future lies in collaboration with other small and uh, medium-sized advocacy organizations. So the first point you, you'd mentioned, was it education, like trying to, to just raise the awareness of it? Was that, was that what I heard? I think I did. Um, yeah, we offer um, guest speaker visits through, yeah. through through us. So we just like zoom in to classrooms. It's all virtual, um, college and high school, but then also conferences and community groups and retirement groups, um, one hour uh, sessions on anything. If you're interested in pronatalism, we do that. Ecological overshoot, anthropocentrism is like our relationship to, to animals and nature. Um, and uh, social justice and just, you know, how a lot of these kind of pro-growth, pro-capitalist um, agendas are happening on the backs of marginalized communities. So really covering an entire gamut of, of things. And again, f- focusing on collaboration, I mean, I think we're, we're starting to realize how powerful collaborations can be, especially, you know, everyone brings something different to the table. And have you been surprised by who you've collaborated with or starting to? Because it may seem, you know, from a childhood perspective, collaborating with somebody or an organization that is focusing on smaller families, you might think that's just an obvious no. <laughs> but really, you know, as we're learning in this conversation that it, there's actual it's, it's 
meaningful and powerful because they're that the child free or the choice com let me put it this way the choice conversation is being addressed which is what's lacking so you know ha have you been surprised by any like other connections you've made as you're getting into that area yeah i i am honestly cuz um my personal motivation to get into this work was i was interested in human rights animal protection and environmental protection uh, and environmental preservation and uh, overpopulation is one area that intersects with all three but my experience at least in the sustainable population advocacy movement was that a lot of focus was going into the smaller family um, narrative and uh, not all but there 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 was a sense of anthropocentrism to some degree where animals or nature were still kind of being seen as um, you know resources uh, but there are a lot of incredible organizations that are doing work in all the three different areas. But to your point, what has surprised me the most is um, uh, animal organizations that are now uh, becoming more interested in this. Um, and, you know, I recently did a presentation at the Animal Law Conference on the connection between our reproductive choices and the impact on animals. And being vegan myself, you know, I'm part of the animal advocacy community, but I feel that a lot of animal advocates don't necessarily make the connection between um, having kids or large families and the impact that our existence has on other species. So even collaborating with animal organizations, it's such a big um, source of inspiration. And then uh, collaborating with an organization that's looking just at children's rights, so Phoenix Zones Initiative, um, and trying to bring sustainable population and anti-pronatalism into these communities um, and saying, we're, we're really all fighting for the same thing. We're fighting for liberation for humans, for animals, and you know, our ecology, our planet. Um, so that has been surprising and I'm, I'm hoping for lots, lots more surprises like that. And people need to realize too, that these children grow up to be adults that are going to make choices, right? Yes. You know, do, <laughs> don't you feel like sometimes people just focus on the baby or, you know, anything, anyone under 12, forgetting that the more we discuss choice, the chances are that these children are going to grow up to probably possibly live more productive lives because they feel like they have some freedom and some say, and they're not just repeating the cycle. But I, I feel like people don't remember that, <laughs> that they grow up. <laughs> so, you know, yes. starting them young at like educating and, and having conversations with younger people about choice to me is exciting, you know, so because ch ch child free people don't, don't be so <laughs> upset or angry at kids because they're the next child free person. <laughs> exactly. I, I mean, we laugh, yes. but it's true. It's true. I mean, it's, it's an important conversation to be had and almost as, as I'm like, as early as you can start. I mean, <laughs> within it's reason sometimes, but totally, know. totally true. Because the point that you're bringing in is, you know, for those of us who have gone into this decision by through pressures and through not having a lot of autonomy um, and not having put a lot of forethought in this decision, um, either because we didn't have the privilege of, of that choice or because, you know, it was just the default path that was set for us and we did it to, you know, do it for our parents or for society or, or whatnot. 
Um, but then those are the same values that we perpetuate when we bring up our children, because unless we do the inner work on you know, our own psychology and our own identity and what makes us who we are and what is our purpose in lives, we are going to basically pass that confusion and that state of mind onto our kids to, to continue that cycle of, you know, being um, kind of cogs in, uh -huh. in the system. It, we, going back to like your education, uh, of educating um, students, when you were coming up with your syllabus, I'm sure you did a ton of research on the, the topic. Is there anyone else, or did you pull anything from anyone else that might be doing this in another uh, classroom setting? Um, the the only one I know uh, is, um, and someone you've already interviewed is Dr. Kimia Dennis, um, who is focusing specifically on uh, the child-free choice. Um, and that that's exciting to me. But other than that, honestly, um, I, I look, actually, the, the reason I created this course is I wanted to take a course to understand pronatalism myself, and there was nothing that existed. So um, my instructor just said, you seem to be driven and motivated enough. Why don't you just pull the resources and come up with the course? Um, and I ended up spending two years <laughs> creating, creating that course. And um, as far as I know, there's no one else teaching it, but I'm hoping that um, it starts becoming more normalized because it is, it's like, you know, fish in the water. It's, it's the water that we're swimming in. So um, no one seems to be talking about this. That's a, that's an all too familiar starting point for a lot, of, a lot of the child, like literally this, like what we're doing right now yes. with the, the, the child free convention. And then like, just, you know, the, the fact that there, there are documentaries coming out, that there's a magazine that's come out, like th these things didn't exist. And so someone took it upon themselves and said, mm -hmm. well, I'm just going to do it. Yes. <laughs> so let that be an, uh, a lesson to everybody in the audience. When you really want something, chances are you have to create it yourself. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Some of us wanted a child-free convention. Turns out <laughs> you got to sometimes put in the work. But I mean, I mean, that's incredible, Nanita, and, and inspiring because... And kudos to the, your instructor who said, hey, yeah. do it yourself. Because first, I mean, that topic alone, you know, is, <laughs> is, is, is some people consider it taboo. I'll just put it that way, you know, so. You're, you're so right. You're so right. I think I just was in the right place at the right time with the right people. Mm -hmm. And um, I can tell you that a lot of other universities I have, you know, other friends in the population movement who even get backlash on wanting to do their thesis on overpopulation because, again, it's considered such a loaded word and a loaded concept that people don't even want to touch it, uh, let alone approach it with nuance and, and you know, uh, look at why, uh, you know, it's such a social and planetary justice issue. But I can't tell you just how privileged and lucky I felt that, number one, I had the support of my instructor, but then the university, when we proposed it to the university, they, um, you know, allowed us to run it. And it's through Antioch University, well-known university in, in New England. Um, so it's, it's like the first credited graduate level course that's talking about the link between overpopulation and pronatalism. And it's going into the psychology 
of pronatalism, not just at, you know, graphs and numbers of overpopulation, but, you know, what we as individual human beings feel um, and what, what does our liberation mean and what does reproductive liberation and um, autonomy mean. And so, yeah, I'm so glad I'm able to run it. It's the most exciting thing I feel like I'm doing uh, right now, along with, you know, my work at Population Balance. Yeah, it, it really is too, because it, it's the groundwork. There's so much data and information and conversation missing from uh, the, the topic of uh, pronatalism, child-free small families in general. Looking at, if, you know, if you do a, a internet search or whatever on, you know, wanting to find information on the population that doesn't have children, the data is skewed because yeah. they basically blanket us all as childless. They say, well, th these people just, they don't have kids. They don't really know what the reason is. They just blanket, well, if you're at this age and don't have, or even it's skewed to where, you know, 18 year olds that don't have kids are put in that number as well. And it's like, well, yeah, I mean, it's not really the same thing. Um, so it's great that you're, you've got, you know, this course going and hopefully other people hear it, they pick up the mantle and it's, started elsewhere and other faculties are are open to it and uh other teachers professors it's it's awesome yeah thank you so much and just before i get to the next question oh well never, <laughs> never <we> mind. Go. <laughs> bad timing <laughs> all right incoming question you can pull it up jared that's okay <laughs> i forfeit my question <laughs> <laughs> oh yeah shout out to jared for directing the show by the way hey Thanks, Jared. And this is sponsored by oh, StreamYard. Yeah. <laughs> Lucas. Oh, well, that that exactly was Oh, my like. goodness. That, that's literally what we were <laughs> that talking about. Question. Thanks, Lucas. <laughs> Great minds think alike. So, yeah, how can we hold corporations and governments responsible? And, Nandita, that segues also to what we were going to ask you. If you want to even speak to population balance, what efforts are, is that, or you know, your organization making to hold corporations accountable this was for climate change global climate crisis but however you want to answer that go ahead sure um yeah and that's the work that i mentioned earlier is is really starting to happen in the space of collaboration so we're working really closely with fair start movement and uh, we undertook an initiative just last month um, they led the way um, where we um, filed a complaint with the United Nations Human Rights Council um, that um, they have been promoting this unsustainable population growth by not acknowledging um, just and sustainable family size uh, and family policies. Um, all of these, you know, economic growth-driven um, mantra is is driving a lot of this pronatalist reproduction. So uh, we um, filed a complaint that, you know, we are in a mess because not only have they not acknowledged that we are overpopulated and that we are in like devastating ecological overshoot, but that um, they have not, um, you know, actively gotten uh, in the way of these unsustainable policies. And the situation that we find ourselves in now um, is that a lot of the kids and youth that are that exist today or anyone born after now is going to experience a really bad cataclysmic future. 
And that is not sugar, you know, can't sugarcoat that because it is things are things are getting bad and things are getting worse in the next 20 to 30 years. And we need to take serious action and our governments need need to take serious action. But we're kind of in an upside down world where we're still incentivizing growth and fossil fuel um, industries and animal agriculture and reproduction and all that. So um, our complaint really was that anyone born today or the youth are actually so fearful about the future, rightfully, that they are afraid to have children. And as you and I have discussed, the right to have children should be uh, a universal right that everyone should have access to. And of course, we're trying to fight pronatalism and saying you shouldn't be forced into having children, but the choice to have children should be available to you. And the situation we've created right now is that choice to have children actually has been taken away from these young people because they're so afraid for their future. And so that's what our complaint was, is that it is um, a source of intergenerational justice that we have not treated our current and previous generations, um, you know, in the same light as we should be treating our future generations. We are actually hurting the future generations through our current policies. And, and so, you know, that uh, luckily that complaint was picked up last week by Insight Climate News and we got some good coverage um, on that. And, you know, that is how I th we think the work is gonna happen is we're just gonna have to keep writing and, um, you know, pushing for policy change efforts through normalizing this stuff in the media. Um, and, you know, so we, we have a similar thing planned for Earth Day um, to, to, to really start pushing for um, policy reform work. And um, I mean, that was, that was one of the things uh, that we'd done, but similar things are uh, underway. That's awesome. Good luck. <laughs> and we'll, we'll link in the archive version of this, all like all the stuff that we can. So uh, <laughs> we'll include all these links, all these great things that uh, Population Balance is working with and working towards. So we'll keep you guys informed as much as we can. Um, I, I, I wanted to ask just quickly, you know, for the individual who's, who's thinking, well, what can I do? I'm just one person. I don't know how to collaborate, but I want to somehow contribute. What do you recommend or if they want to get started on on this journey of advocating for you know anything that you've, you've mentioned here how do you recommend someone just just get it just getting started um so obviously individual choices are they matter you know we we the individuals are what make the collective so taking that choice seriously and um you know whether it means you you want to have a sustainable you want to you know, promote a sustainable uh, life choice for yourself, doing things like considering your reproductive choices, um, you know, not flying as much or at all, um, not owning a car or taking, you know, other low carbon transportation uh, methods, you know, moving to a plant-based diet. Those are small individual things you can do, but then we really do need to catalyze some kind of collective action because I think we are we are going to need something much much bigger to happen uh, in order for real change to have to, to take place and um, I think letters to the editor and, and writing op-ed pieces are a great way to to get involved 
Uh, I used to loathe the idea of doing that myself. I just never, you know, saw the point. I was too self-conscious about writing publicly, but now I'm realizing letter to the editors are some of the best ways of changing the narrative in media and what people are reading um, and, and really challenging these kind of normative default paths that are uh, foisted upon us. Uh, and then, you know, see if you can volunteer with an organization that is doing good work uh, in this area. That's volunteers are so um, valued in organizations like ours that don't have a lot of money. Uh, but we can really use uh, good, honest help. Those are excellent suggestions. Yeah. I mean, we can talk to the power of volunteering, the need for it. And also, too, you made a point. I mean, we should have another discussion on how to get over one's fears of, you know, writing to the editor. Or like in my case, it was being on screen. Like, I did not ever want to do this. Now I love me it. Too. You can't get me off screen. But you get over it. But yes. that is the hurdles, like your own insecurities. Like, you know, you have there's something you want to say and you, you feel you can add it, but it's, it's get it's getting over yourself. I mean, get over yourself. <laughs> yes. we're, we're up, we're up here. We got to, you know, and we're figuring it out, but that is, that is half the battle is, is sometimes I find that the, what actually what I did find is that the message was more important than my insecurities and that yeah. forward. Yeah. What you have to say is important. You re realize yeah. like not, not because like I'm saying it, it's because the message, like I believe in the child free message so much that I am willing to, go on screen in a bazillion yeah. different hair colors. So just, just to click, right? Like it's it's the message that that's important. And I and even if that's the only thing that's driving, actually that's the last question that Cody should ask. I'm going into that territory. We'll, we'll get to, yeah, we'll get to that. It's, but the, but, the um, it, just looking on the internet, like there's always like almost, I feel like daily, almost daily, there's always some kind of a clickbait article of, Oh, the population is declining or, you know, uh, you know, the next millennials or next generation is, is opting out of having kids. And it, they're almost taking it from a standpoint of um, maybe a little bit of snarkiness or that they're trying to, like, demonize someone's choice to not have a child. Um, yes. And, and, and that's a problem, like you're saying, like to, you know, write the editor, like the comment section should be like, good like <laughs> yes, <laughs> i mean that's all you have to right. say like you don't have to get in depth it's like well good yeah that's awesome like, but, yes. it, but but i feel like yeah like but they're they're just like literally not even skimming the surface they're flying over the surface of like yeah. they're just basically assuming like we're all wanting to be riding our jet skis in the bahamas or something mm -hmm. it's not, not the case at all a lot of thought goes into what we're, we're talking about the the child free uh, lifestyle a lot of thought goes to that for people it, it's not just a one-off a lot of well some people don't, don't want to have kids but it gets deeper than that and there's usually another layer below just not wanting it it might be um, a financial reason maybe you just don't feel like you're financially stable enough to have a child you, you've thought about like you're saying the well-being of that child that doesn't exist um, yes. Maybe it's maybe it's the environment. Maybe it's a, a you know the, the the spotted horned owl or whatever animal that you really love that might be extinct. The, the you know um, there's something below that, but it seems like all these articles and topics they're just so clickbaity where they just splash this exact same. They can just copy and paste it from each other. Yes. So uh, yeah, child free people. You know when you see those articles, and if you're you're gonna comment like you know yeah, it's like good. <laughs> yes. even better do, do, do it in quote say good cody hetzel <laughs> <laughs> yes 
Um, so anyway, what motivates you uh, to speak out on the topic of pronatalism? Like you, you've kind of gotten into that, uh, but what what's really like your motivating drive to, to continue this effort to build these collaborations? The next step, no one's probably even thought of what the next step is, but what you're doing is laying the groundwork for that. So what what's the motivator? I mean, a big part of the motivator, as I spoke earlier, is is was my own life path and just how um, just, yeah, like I really did not even think this was going to be an option for me um, because it was just perfectly painted for me what my life path was going to look like. So uh, having made the choice to not have children was a combination of privilege, information, my own wherewithal, you know, my own courage to go against my cultural norm. Uh, I come from, you know, an extra layer of pronatalist culture from from India. So like, it's even stronger there. I didn't even ever meet a child-free person while I was growing up there. And so for me, it has been literally the most liberating decision that I've ever made because it has afforded me the time, the resources, the passion to do all the other work that I do. Um, but so a, a lot of a lot of it is you know personally motivated, which I think are is a lot of our passions work is personally motivated. Um, and so I came to pronatalism from a place of personal liberation and really wanting to to pierce through the barriers that exist for people and making more liberated choices for themselves. And then now it's led me into this you know figuring out this intimate link between pronatalism and overpopulation is they go hand in hand. Um, you know, I come from a premise that pronatalism is the root cause of overpopulation. It is, it is the driving force that is causing our numbers to grow so quickly where individuals don't matter, where people don't matter. It's just this reckless, um, you know, addiction to growth that is being foisted upon people from our governance structures. And so this is not a coincidence that we're in this situation. It has very much been part of our, our mantra for so long. So that for me, it's, you know, emotional, but it's also, you know, a deep reverence for the planet. We, we kind of live on this miraculous planet that um, has taken, you know, it's taken us millions and millions of years to get to this point. And we are kind of at this point where all of this could be lost in the next, you know, hundreds um, of years um, with leading to a lot of suffering of, of people and animals. And, and so that seems like a really heartbreaking place to be looking at the planet from. And yeah, that's that's really what what drives uh, a lot of my work is, you know, people say if you unless you have a child, you don't know what real love is. Well, you know, let's um, put that in the face of, of that misassumption, because here we are child free people and we are doing some really good work uh, that's much, much bigger than ourselves and much bigger than, you know, our notion of uh, purpose. Yeah, and, and helping people that uh, you know, we, we don't even know in now or even in the future. Yeah. Yeah. We have an incoming question or is that a, a glitch in the system? Here we go. 
there's our friend. Oh, who's <laughs> yeah, you read? I was literally just reading it. Go Sir, ahead. I I'll be honest, I was taking screenshots for social media. Um, <laughs> okay, I've read that half of pregnancies in the U.S. are unintended. Could you talk about the role that access to reproductive health care, contra contraception, abortion, etc., plays in creating options? Thank you, Therese Schechter, for sending in that question, by the way. Thank you, Therese. Um, yes. A big part of reproductive autonomy is access to reproductive health care uh, and reproductive health technologies, uh, not only information, but also, you know, actual um, health care and services. Um, and, you know, in the United States, I'm, I'm living in Canada and I know you are too, Lenora. Um, but in, in the U.S., the state of sex ed curriculum is um, quite abysmal. Um, we actually just did a podcast. Our last podcast was speaking about sex education. Um, and, um, you know, in a lot of, depending on where you live, we are still kind of teaching abstinence-only sex um, and, you know, uh, family planning. So we cannot overstate the role of access and information to reproductive health care in giving people true freedom. Um, you know, it's not choice doesn't come uh, just by having contraceptives. That's one thing. We also need to fight against these structures, um, especially in low and middle income countries where there's like over 200 million women who wish to avoid a pregnancy who cannot do that. Um, not because they don't have access, access is there, but because there are taboos and rumors and misassumptions around using contraception that dissuade people from using those. And so that's called coercive pronatalism. That's called coercive reproduction when people are being forced to carry through pregnancies when they do not want that ch child. Children are being brought into this world uh, where they are not going to have a fair start uh, in their own lives. So um, access, information, and dismantling a lot of this crap that is being sold um, is going to be the real work in, in I think, you know, solving uh, true re reproductive liberation, but also solving our population issue. Yeah. And having these conversations is is one of those steps. Even if you're just, you know, watching it, having comments, like get engaged with what's going on, whether it's uh, child-free, small families. Like, I, you know, it's that that is opening up, you know, uh, a door to me just looking at what you're doing. And yeah, it, it's definitely, you know, a partner in this. Whereas if pronatalism was a castle, you know, child-free people have the battling ram just trying to knock the door down. Whereas you guys are like knocking on the door and say, hey, we've got something to say here and this is vital information. Let us in, let's talk. <laughs> that's, that's, I guess, how I would visually see it happening. So yeah, uh, the, the approach of, you know, dialogue, data, information, um, and dismantlement, you know, one brick at a time is, is going to be a lot easier than trying to kick the door down and say, change everything right now. Like it's, you know. Yes. And to add to that point, you know, Nandita, you've you've mentioned the word privilege a couple of times, you know, talking about like, yes, we live in Canada. You and I live in Canada. We 
I, I didn't know it was a choice either, but again, it, it, it hit me that, you know, I could choose to not have kids and living in a pro-choice country, access to education, you know, birth control, people use the term privilege, but it, it is true. We are privileged. And so I want to, you know, just ask, like, using your one's privilege of knowing that it's a choice to speak out, to add on to what Cody said, like, do you feel a responsibility? Because I realize now I feel responsible to add my voice to the conversation, share my experience, do what I can to help this conversation further, because I am in a position where I get to choose exactly how I live my life. Yes. And do you feel that way too? Thousand percent. Um, and I think really, like I said, my my life path became my work um, because it was so personally motivated. And and I think, you know, people respond to to personal stories and um, we respond to what's best for us. And so if we're speaking to people from a place of personal liberation, there's nothing more impactful uh, than that. And that's where I feel, Lenora, to your point, for those of us who have chosen the child-free path um, and had the privilege of choice, we could really band together and be fighting for uh, true reproductive justice. Um, you know, I'd really feel like it's it's a moral imperative for, for those of us who have had that to then do it for the others who don't. And guess what? We, having chosen this path, we have the time and we have the resources to, to give to causes like this. Um, so, you know, what a great way to use our, um, our, our privilege to catalyze real change. Yeah. And I think, uh, unless there's any other questions, Jared, is there any, anybody hiding out there with a question for us? If not, we will start to kind of wrap things up. Lenore, do you have anything that you'd like to ask? Uh, oh, I was just going to say that last statement just has me so fired up. I get so energized yeah. with these conversations. I'm like, <laughs> let's keep talking. I mean, we can I have know. this live stream, <laughs> but you know, it's just, it, it's good because it, it speaks to that there is passion. And again, people ask, why do you talk about this? Well, why not? I mean, there's, there's a need for the, com the conversation. Somebody has to talk about it. Exactly. And the <laughs> yes. fact that people don't real understand or are aware that there is a need because we hear, we hear about it. You hear about it. I mean, even people with kids want to talk about choice. So yeah. the yes. conversation's not going anywhere for anyone that's trying to get us to shut up. It's not going to happen. But no, I, I, I love this. Thank you so much for joining us. This has been fantastic. And it, it, it to me, it continues to inspire me to keep going with the conversation. So thank you. Thank you guys um, for, for, sure. for having me. And thank you for the good work you are doing. Like, look at what you've created. Look at what you've catalyzed with your conference and with the convention. Um, it, you know, it's through that that I've met so many incredible people. So I, I'm really in your debt for doing your part in normalizing this conversation. Thank you. We'll do it again. Cody, hey, if there's anything that Nadina <laughs> okay. wanted to plug, yeah, let's, let's let you plug something for a few minutes. Is there any... Anything that, that you're working on that you want to let people know about? Um, should I put stuff in chat or? Um... We, we do have a graphic that we're going to be posting after we've all left the screen. It will be coming up. And then in comments, we will be posting all the links that you sent us. But if you want to tell everybody how to find you or, or what you want to share, and then we will put a static image up afterwards. So Sure. Yes. Yeah, so the two organizations that I currently represent are Population Balance, which you can find populationbalance.org and Fair Start Movement fairstartmovement.org. 
both organizations doing really good partnership work in dismantling these forces. And uh, uh, you can find us both uh, online by, uh, and we're all over social media as well. Cody, did you want to introduce yeah, yourself sure. and then yeah. something? Well, I'll introduce myself at the end. Uh, Cody okay. Hetzel, uh, co-founder of the Child Free Convention, as we know, but also uh, founder of childfreefamily.com. It is a micro social network for child-free folks. It's got a really cool map. So if you ever have that question of where are the child-free people, uh, go there. There's a map. Just you know, register for a free account and you'll pop up on the map as well. And then hopefully you can meet some child-free friends and neighbors all around the world. <laughs> and I'm Lenora Fay, also one of the co-founders of Child Free Convention. Um, you can find me on my podcast I co-host called Child Free Girls. Um, my website is laurafay.com. I have a morning show called Child for Morning Chat that I do every Monday through Friday on the Clubhouse app. And I have a child for lifestyle brand called The Bitchy Bookkeeper, which you can go to thebitchybookkeeper.com and yeah, <laughs> go there and find out some cool stuff. Um, so that is us. Oh, Wait, I'm going to let you. Jared's in the oh, background. <laughs> He's got a Facebook group, Best Child for Life Possible. So if you're on Facebook, check out Best Child for Life. There Periods. we go. We got hey. Jared. Okay. So, and then I'm uh, supposedly uh, coming 2022. I'm trying to get a, a child free awareness run, kind of just something to start it out with. Uh, have people like running for to just promote trying to promote the child free lifestyle, lifestyle you know yeah. say i'm child free and wear your t-shirt while you're running that's kind of what I, i'm aiming to do for this uh, upcoming year in 2022 besides trying to branch out the child free convention and uh you know expand it to make it even better than last year the first and year by, by the way speaking of child free convention stay tuned next month we will be announcing a few things regarding 2022. Can I say that? <laughs> Possibly. Too late now. <laughs> <laughs> Stay tuned. We won't say what, but information's coming. So again, thank you to our audience for sticking with us. If you're watching replay, please feel free to comment, leave comments, um, anything, any questions you have. Uh, sorry, let me say this again. Leave questions <laughs> you have for today's panel. If you do have comments, you can leave comments too. We'll make sure that Nandita, sorry, I'm going to get to uh, gets to see them and answer the questions as well. Again, thank you everyone for joining us today. This has been, what is the title? <laughs> sorry, is child free good for the planet? This has been this panel. And the answer is yes. And, and thank you StreamYard, StreamYard for sponsoring us, making this possible to do these awesome streams. So streamyard.com. And of course, our special guest, Nandita Bajaj. Thank yes. you so, so much for your conversation today. Thank you. And guys. we will chat with you all soon. We hope you enjoyed this episode presented by Child Free Media Limited. To stay current with child-free content like this, please visit childfreemedia.com and subscribe to the newsletter.